Well, as you uh, look around, and I'm sure at the other campuses and venues as you look around, you realize that the exodus has already happened. And uh, happens every year. It, it happens in about two stages. The first one happens at the end of April when all the uh, snowbirds leave. And, and I, I get a front row seat to it because they all come up to me and, and they have the, the same tune. I love what they say. They say, we love this church. We love you. We'll see you next October. And, and they're gone. And... <laughs> And then the second exodus happens about right now, and that's those that have mountain homes here in Arizona or San Diego, and, and, and they uh, kind of take off as soon as school ends, and the kids are out of school, and that leaves the rest of us, what I affectionately call the remnant. That's you and me. And, and you need to be encouraged by that, because in the Old Testament, it says that in the end, only a remnant will be saved. So, you know, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> And so, Dave, that's funny. You can clap at that and laugh. All right, good. Thank you. And so we try to do, as mentioned earlier, try to do a few things here in the summer to, to make it worth your while. Seriously, the, the first is that uh, Immerse uh, Bible Reading Challenge. We want to read the New Testament together as a congregation. So even when I'm gone in July for a few weeks here, uh, Kim and I are going to be participating in that with you. We're going to read the New Testament together as a church. And so, you know, I was thinking last night, some people might say, well, I've read the New Testament a lot. Well, there's this little doctrine called illumination that Christians believe. And what that means is, is that every time we read the Bible, even if you read it a thousand times before, the Holy Spirit illumines your minds and hearts. Amen. And so there might be more, wouldn't just this just be God, that he wants to show you in his word. And so that's what it is about this summer, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, uh, we're going to do that together. And I hope you participate in that. And then we also reserve, um, I, I mean, I don't know how to say this, but we don't shy away from really strong, relevant Bible teaching here at Scottsdale Bible in the summer. I, I'm going to start a series today, a three-week series on one parable of Jesus's, the prodigal son. My wife said to me, because she heard me teach on this about 15 years ago when I was in Cleveland, and she said, oh my gosh, that was such an amazing series. Are, are you sure you want to do it in the summer? And I said, absolutely I am. Because for those of you who show up, we want to, again, just continue on in the vein that makes our church our church. And that's just really relevant, practical, applicational Bible teaching that reaches our lives. So we're going to start that today. And you're going to notice a, a picture that we're going to bring out here. That's going to be kind of a guide for us over the next three weeks. It's also on the front of your bulletin. So uh, if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in and, and Chapel Venue, Northridge, and Cactus, if you grabbed a bulletin, uh, you can pull that out. We'll be referencing that over the next few weeks. So, with that said, welcome to church. Why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray and we're going to dive right in. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your church. We thank you for the gathered people of God. That's what church is. It's not buildings, not ministries, it's not policies, uh, nothing like that. It's the people uh, that come here in the name of Jesus and at our other campuses and venues and, and gathered all throughout the world today in, in, in hundreds of thousands of churches so we pray that as we uh, focus our sights on you and now open your word, that you would speak to us through this amazing parable that Jesus told that many of us are familiar with, but need to go even deeper in. We're going to do that over the next few weeks, Father. Bless this time by your spirit, empower it by your word, and I pray this in Christ's name, and we say together, amen. 
So the year was 1983, and the famous Dutch theologian, author, and university professor, Henry Nouwen, was visiting a colleague in Trostly, France, and while he was in her office, he noticed there was a poster on the back of her door, and this poster grabbed him, and he could not take his eyes off it. And listen to what he says in his own words. He says, I saw a man in a great red cloak tenderly touching the shoulders of a disheveled boy kneeling before him. I could not take my eyes away. I felt drawn to the intimacy between these two figures, the warm red of the man's cloak, the golden yellow of the boy's tunic, and the mysterious light that engulfed them both. But most of all, it was the hands, the old man's hands, as they tenderly touched the boy's shoulders that reached me in a place that I had not been reached before. And realizing his friend was no longer paying attention to her, she said, Henry, why are you looking at that poster? And he said, what is that? And he said, she said, oh, that's a reproduction of Rembrandt's famous painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Now one had heard of Rembrandt, as all of us have, the famous 17th century uh, painter. He just didn't know that Rembrandt painted such amazing scenes. And so he bought himself a copy of it, headed back to the United States, and he put a copy of it on his wall as well. This is the painting here. And again, it's on your, your bulletin cover. We're going to be referencing it over the next few weeks. And, and when he got back, he, he put a copy on his wall. And then a few years later, he was traveling Europe again. And he had the opportunity to go to St. Petersburg in Russia and, and go to the famous Hermitage Museum where this painting hangs. It's eight feet by six feet. It's a massive painting. And he got an opportunity to have a private viewing of this painting. Four hours over two days, Henry Nouwen sat in front of this painting just staring at it. And he wondered if he was going to be disappointed with that much time in front of one painting, and he was not. It was the opposite experience. Listen to what he says. He says, I was stunned by its majestic beauty, its size larger than life, its abundant reds, browns, and yellows, its shadowy recesses and bright foreground, but most of all, the light-enveloped embrace of the Father and the Son surrounded by these four mysterious bystanders, all of this gripped me with an intensity far beyond anticipation. If you haven't realized it yet, folks, what you want to dial into is that Nouwen saw something in this painting, in this classic depiction of one of Jesus' most powerful and well-known parables that forever changed his perspective on God and others. And it had everything to do with the three primary characters in this painting and in the story. The father, the rebellious son who has come home, and then the older brother up here who's looking on into the scene. And as now one started to reread this parable and do more in-depth study into it and focus on it, he eventually wrote a book aptly called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. And I've read the book numerous times, and though Nouwen shares quite a few things in this book, probably the most insightful and profound thing that will become the basis for the series that we're going to embark on today is simply this, that he argues that all of us at times are the younger son. 
rebellious, wandering, even running from our heavenly father. And then he points out that all of us at times are the older son, dutiful, responsible, homebound, hardworking, and angry because of it. And then all of us, he says, are eventually called to grow up in life and become like the father full of compassion and welcoming young ones home. I like how Nowen says it in his book. This is the heart of it all. He says, I am the younger son. I am the elder son. And I'm on my way to becoming the father. And so what we're gonna do over the next three weeks here at our church is break this story down of Jesus's into three different views. The view of the younger son, the view of the elder son, and then the view of the father. And all I can promise you is that if you open yourself up to what God might have for you in this story of Jesus's, I can't believe he's not gonna speak to you. He's gonna somehow show you where you are spiritually when it comes to your walk with God. And so let's dive in today, no more introduction, and take a look at the younger son as recorded in Luke chapter 15. Three things. The first part of the story teaches us about ourselves and God. Three powerful and life-changing things that this younger son shows us. And the first thing is this, that we all run from God at times in our lives. Let me repeat that, because some of you don't believe this, but we're gonna show you it's true. We all run from God at times in our lives. And Jesus is trying to help you see this. I want you to look at how this story begins in verses 12 to 13 of Luke 15. Jesus is speaking. He's telling one of his famous parables to the crowds here. And he says this. He says, the younger of them, the two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he, the father, divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, it doesn't take a PhD to understand or to catch what's going on here. The younger son begins by saying to his dad, give me my inheritance or the share of the estate. Now, here's what you want to dial into right now. If you went to your old man today or your father and said, I want you to give me your inheritance like now before you're dead, would that be a rather rude thing to say yes or no? Probably. I wouldn't suggest you do it. There's no biblical precedence here for doing that. Because back then is like today, it was unheard of, it was rude for somebody to do that. There were some Eastern Oriental cultures back then in biblical times that practiced this, but not the Jewish culture. You did not get your inheritance till after uh, the person had passed on. And so this was a very, very rude thing for this son to say. It would be about one-third of the estate because the older brother would get a double portion according to the Old Testament law. And for some reason, the father gives him a share, a third of this estate. And Jesus says, I don't know if you caught it, that this son got together all that he had. In other words, he was going to take off, this is important, with everything that he owned. He was not planning on coming back. This wasn't a little summer trip to Europe in between college and real life. No, this was the guy taken off for good, and he was not planning on returning. And and to be sure, it says that he went to a distant country, as far away from the father as he could get. 
And then the knockout punch of this rebellious adventure occurs when Jesus says that the younger son, and let's just point it out here in the text, squandered his share of the estate with loose living. Now, I like how the Bible's gentle at times, don't you? Loose living. The NIV translates this wild living. That word, it's one word in the original Greek, literally means wasteful, riotous, decadent, immoral. You get the idea. In fact, the the older brother will not mince words. We'll look at this in a few weeks. In verse 30 uh, of this story, the older brother, when he's all angry about all the stuff going on here, uh, actually says, and this son squandered our estate with prostitutes. So there you got it. That was probably a war story from what the son did with the money here. But just suffice it to say that he took the money, went off, partied big in a hedonistic fashion. He just went wild and let it all out. And before we move on in this story, let's park for a minute and notice the obvious thing that Jesus is making clear here. And that is this, that this younger son is running full on from the father. He's running full blast from his father. And Jesus never tells us why. We don't know if he had a fight with his dad or disagreed with him on the family business or felt jealous of the older brother, which would have been common in some families, or maybe he just wanted to strike out on his own. All we know is that the kid wanted out and the kid wanted out of a very good situation, amen? I mean, this kid had it made. Times were really tough back then as compared to now. So when you had a family that was doing well, you stayed with it. But not this kid. He he wanted to go out on his own, and it wasn't a brilliant move. And in getting away, he went hog wild doing all the things that he knew he should not do. And here's what we don't want to miss at this point in the story. This is the whole point of the parable. And that is that this represents us, you and me, in our relationship with and before God our father, our creator. And so whether we like it or not, whether we even admit it or not, Jesus's point is clear that humanity, and especially you and I, have this tendency to run from God at times in our lives. And again, I know how some of you think. Some of you are saying, well, Jamie, yeah, I know. I know some people do that, but I don't really do that, you see, in my life. Let's just settle this issue once and for all, shall we? And to do so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a prop up here. And, and Andrew, who's our, our campus pastor with the white pants today. I love those pants, Andrew. Why don't you come up here on the stage? Don't you guys love Andrew's pants here today? Thank you, Andrew. Yep. And uh, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to sit here in this stool. And, and here's why I've asked Andrew to come up. He saw us do this last night, so he's ready for this. Uh, I want you guys to pretend, it'll be a little bit of a stretch, but we'll go with it, that Andrew is God, just for the sake of this illustration. You'll see why that's important in a minute. And and so Andrew, you being God, uh, the way that we are taught to relate to God in the Bible is to face him squarely and to talk to him regularly and then to hear back from him in his word and through his spirit within and to serve him, but to just stay facing the Lord and talking to him on a regular basis in our spirits and our hearts, even with our physical bodies. Now, here's why this is important. What Jesus is saying in this story is that this younger son ran from God. So it would look like this. He just started running from his father to a distant place. 
And some of you are tempted to say right now, as you notice this distant proximity, well, I don't do that very often. Well, let's look at some of the other ways that this might happen. Because Christians are really wily. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) Sometimes, some of you don't run. You just kind of jog away from God, right? So you're kind of hung up on that that phrase, run. Well, maybe it's not a run. Maybe you sort of just jog away from God before you realize there's some distance. Some of you don't jog. Maybe some of you just sort of saunter away from God. You sort of stop having quiet times and stop looking and talking to him. You kind of want to do your own thing, which is all about your flesh. And so you're kind of sauntering around the edges here. And before you know it, you've crossed a line. And there's some distance between you and God. And some of you are more even sneaky than that. Some of you stay in close proximity, man. You make sure everybody knows you're reading your Bible and you're going to church and you're tithing 10 on the gross and all that other stuff that Christians do and you're staying in the ring, but you know in your heart of hearts you've done this to God. Look at this image here. You've turned your back on him. And so there's still that proximity, but you know, you know that you're not really doing business with God anymore at all. Thank Andrew for helping us with this illustration here. The man with the white pants. Thank you, Andrew. All right. So here's what I don't want you to get hung up on. When I say, and when Jesus shows that this guy runs from God, if you want to insert the word stray or wander or ignore or coast or the phrase go your own way, do your own thing, that's just fine. The point is, is that we have a good heavenly father who loves us, who wants to be in right relationship with us 24-7. And all of humanity has run from God. That's really the point of this parable. But a secondary point is that even for those of us who know the Lord through Jesus, there's this propensity in us to turn our back and run from him. Whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, we all tend to stray at times. I know I do, and I know you do. And maybe you're even there right now. Maybe here at Shea or in the Cactus Campus or Northridge, or maybe watching online, you're sitting here today going, man, that's me right now. I had a guy come up to me last night who hadn't been to church for a while, or at least this church, and he said, man, you nailed it, that's me. Maybe you're in that mode right now where you've wandered or you've run or just turned your back. And the first thing Jesus shows you in this story is that that is going to be a tendency of your flesh, of your fallen nature. But take heart because God has a plan here. So now that we're all on the same page with this idea of sometimes acting like the younger son, let's notice a second thing that this story makes clear. And that is... When we run, we all need a wake-up call to get us to realize our need for the Father. We all need a wake-up call. In other words, and this is hard for some of us to swallow, when we veer off course, and we many times don't even realize it, something has to wake us up. And sometimes it might be something overt and painful. Other times it might be less dramatic. But we all need something to wake us up for our need to return home to the Father. Look at how Jesus goes on to show us this in the story. We'll pick up in verse 14 where we left off. It says, now when he, the younger son, had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he, the younger son, began to be impoverished. 
So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses. Now, I want you to track with me the downward progression, because that's what's going on here that Jesus tells us about. At first, notice that the younger son spent everything. He blew it wastefully. I mean, a rave party, I'm told, is expensive, and this guy went crazy on those types of parties, and there's no money left. And then to add insult to injury, you notice this, a severe famine hit that country that he was in. So he couldn't go out and just find a job that would replenish the resources. No, there were no jobs really to be found. So he's broke and the economy's gone south. And so he obviously began to become impoverished. That word carries with it a sense that not only are you broke, but nobody's coming around to help you. There's not even any relational resources, again, because he's without family. And yet this isn't the worst of it yet. Because rock bottom comes when this kid gets a job feeding swine. Anybody here know what a swine is? Say it if you do. It's a pig. So this young Jewish boy that would never even eat pork, isn't that kind of rich, if you know the Old Testament, is now stuck in a pig pen feeding pigs, and it's, he's being paid so little that the food he was able to buy for himself was not as good as what the pigs were eating. Now that's low. And notice with me that it was then and only then that Jesus tells us, and I love this verse, that this kid came to his senses. He came to his senses. And this phrase in Greek literature is a classic expression that literally means he came to himself. Some of you know what that's about. He had an awareness, the light went on in his head about what his life had become apart from the father. And he realized his utter mistake in leaving home and how it would probably be a good thing to make his journey back home. And yet before we get to that part of the journey, let's once again pause and notice the obvious but important point that Jesus is making here about you and me and God. And that is that he is telling us that when we run from God, which we've established all of us do, something has to wake us up to bring us back to him. Something has to break. And though we hope that it is not something too catastrophic or painful, what we need to see in this story here, now this is what many people don't understand about God, is that if that's what it takes, he is committed to it. You're going, whoa. You mean God's committed to either allowing or bringing bad things to come into my life? What's the answer to that, yes or no? Yes, why? Because he loves you and he cares for you. And he's a good father and here's what God knows that many people don't understand. And that is that the sweet spot in life is to be in right relationship with him, amen? The sweet spot in life, go back to our stool here that Andrew was sitting on, is when we are facing squarely God in close proximity to him, reading the word, praying, serving him, walking with him, confessing sin, receiving his grace, all the things that we know to do to walk with him. That's the sweet spot. And when we run or even just turn our back, he knows we're no longer in the sweet spot. And he's committed 
to a wake-up call in our lives, not because he hates us or wants to rain on our parade, but because he loves you. And even though he can be tough at times, it's his care that is bringing, allowing those things to come into your life. And they are brutal things. I have been a pastor now for 30 years and I've seen wake-up calls come in all different shapes and sizes. It might be a painful or crushing circumstance, a job loss, a marital breakdown, a financial hardship, an addiction. See, God uses those sometimes just natural consequences of our rebellion. He uses those things to kind of jar us awake, basically saying, how's life apart from me? It might be a dark night of the soul, maybe loneliness, some anxiety, fear, discouragement, that internal agony that, again, the Lord uses to say, are you ready to come back to me? It might be a loss of some kind. A loss many times in our lives makes us realize that this world is fragile and that the things we have are very temporary, but eternity is forever and permanent. And so loss many times shows us, gives us a glimpse into eternity. And still for others, it can be less dramatic, maybe just a realization I know there's times that I've been running from God or turned my back on him. I mean, I'm normal, I'm human. And there's times where I just wake up and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've strayed again. I can't believe I've wandered from God again. And I start to make my way back to him. And as I do, I, I'm yelling to God, you don't need to bring anything bad in my life, God. I get it, I get it. <laughs> See, I think that's legitimate, that, that realization. Here's my point. Wake-up calls come in many different forms. And this will shock some of you. My great fear when it comes to wake-up calls is not the form that they come in. No, I've seen all different kinds of forms. Here's my fear, is will we listen and will we heed them? Let me ask you a question. This is worth wrestling with for just a few minutes. How many of you, maybe for your own life or somebody else, have ever seen somebody going through what this prodigal went through where they're running from God and all of a sudden things start to go south, you know, and God allows these things to come in their lives and, and things get worse and worse and worse and they kind of hit what you would think were, is rock bottom and, and they don't cry uncle and run back to God. How many of you ever seen somebody go through that? You, you need to hang out with more people because I see a lot of people <laughs> go through that. There are people in my life right now whom I love deeply, who, who are prodigals and, and they're running from God and, and, and their life just isn't all that happy uh, apart from him, which is normal, by the way. And I wonder to myself, why is it taking so long? What is it going to take? Why can't they see this wake-up call and make their way back to God? I actually have a theory here, and it might not encourage you. It's kind of, it's a reality thing, but, it, but it's a little bit discouraging. I know what, to think of life like this, but, but, but I think it's real. And that is that there's something in our fallen nature it is the only way I can explain it. There's something in our fallen nature that is so dark that it actually at times would prefer sin and the shame that goes with it. And, and the creepy comfort that that gives in some sort of sick way than to be home with the Father. I, I know it's hard for some of us to grab onto, but believe me, I, I've worked with enough people that, that that's what happens sometimes in our soul. That we'd actually would prefer pig slop <laughs> than we would to be home on the farm. And so the only thing we can do when somebody gets there, and, and you're gonna love this, some of you are gonna hate this, is to do what? Is to pray for those that are in that spot, right Al? Just pray for them. 
I know this is gonna sound almost mean, but I, I pray for the prodigals in my life right now and I have them. I pray a lot of things for them. I pray that the love and grace of the Father would be revealed to them and that his wooing and calling would penetrate their hearts. I pray a lot of things. But then I also always pray, and I smile at this because it's almost a sadistic prayer, but it's really worth it. I pray, God, please don't ever let them find satisfaction or comfort apart from you. Whoa. And again, I don't want to pray bad things on my friends and my family. I love them deeply. But, but I also know, again, go back to that sweet spot thing. This is the sweet spot with us and God. And anytime we're out of that, here's the cool thing. God doesn't want you to get too comfortable that way. Because that's not where he wants you to be. And so let me ask you this question. What is it going to be for you? If you're somebody right now who's running from God, and you haven't heard your wake-up call, ask yourself, what is it going to take? What will cause you, like that prodigal, to come to your senses? Because maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that you say, enough. I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of the pig slop. As the psalmist once said, God, take me out of the muck and mire and put me onto dry ground. Maybe that's where you are right now. Because if that's you, or if you've ever been there before, then it's at this point that we experience something very normal for a prodigal. The story really is amazing. And that is that we ask ourselves, okay, if I'm ready to make my way home back to God, and isn't this just the normal question, we ask ourselves, what is he gonna think about me coming home? Have you ever thought about that? Especially if it's not the first time that you've strayed and the first time that you've come back home. I mean, that's one thing. Like when you come to God for salvation for the very first time, you hear about his grace and the blood of Jesus and that he welcomes you home. Man, that's glorious, right? But then when that first fervor wears off, when that first love starts to wane a little bit, which it does after a few years, and you find yourself straying, and then you make your way back and you got, kind of got that second wind, you say, thank you, God. But what do you do, gang, when it happens again? What do you do when it happens again? What do you do when it happens again? And some of you, I love you to death, but you're so much in denial and you're so arrogant, you don't think that it does happen again. Guess what? It does. And the reason I know that is because I work with too many people. I work too much with my own soul. And we need to open our eyes to how much we wander, run, stray from God on a regular basis. And how we're like the prodigal. And we need to make our way home. And if you can all relate to that on a day-in, day-out basis, then the question becomes... What is God's going to response be after the hundredth time that we do that? Because what you're tempted to think, and this is Satan's whispers, I can promise you, what you're tempted to think is that he really isn't going to want to receive you back. That he's essentially going to say, you know what, enough is enough. You're just one big walking mess up, and I can't believe that you're trying to get back in my good graces again. We tend to think that that's how God might respond and yet Jesus tells us otherwise. Because here's the third thing, and the final thing that this younger son teaches us about God our Father, and it's this, that we all, I've thought about my wording very carefully here, we all find God waiting with wide open arms. This is your God, wide open arms. Listen to me closely, folks. He does not look at you with judgment and say, I told you so. He does not look at you and say, you know what? I can't believe you're trying to come back again. I mean, just go back to the pig slop and think about it a little bit longer. He doesn't say that. 
And he also doesn't say, hey, you know what? Glad you came back. It's time for some penance. Get back to work. Then we'll talk about, you know, you and me. He doesn't say any of that. No, the whole point of this story is about wide open arms that envelop the son and embrace him. I want you to look at this painting here. Then we're going to read the rest of the story here. I mean, this is what hit now and so hard. We'll focus this next week on Father's Day when we talk about the father. And just notice what moved now and more than anything were the hands. I don't know if you guys can get a close-up here on the hands. Maybe you can. I can't see the screen right now. But, but essentially, what Nouwen noticed, I think Rembrandt meant this, is that if you look closely, there's one hand that's bigger than the other. One of them is kind of big and strong and burly, and the other one is, is more tender and small. And again, we'll flush this out next week, but Nouwen points out that as the father ran, as we'll see in a minute, to embrace this son and put his hands on him, there's, there, there's strength and tenderness all at once. And the question I have for you is, could that be God? Could that be God for you? Let's finish the story. It says, but when he, the younger son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I got an idea. I'm gonna get up and go to my father and I'm gonna say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up, give me the next uh, slide here. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, now watch this, and felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son rehearsed his speech and said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. There's a lot going on here. I mean, again, this is such a rich and deep story. Let me just point out a couple of things, and we'll add it up to show what's really happening here. Obviously, the son has a resolve here, like many of us do. He basically says, I can't believe that the father's going to show me grace. I mean, this would be like outlandish. So I guess I'll just go in and try to barter some sort of penance to earn it. And he rehearses his speech, <laughs> and he gives his speech to the father. But before he can get all the way through it, the father says, no, 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 no. The father says, you are my son. You were lost and you were found. And it's fascinating because the father says, get the best robe get the ring, get the sandals. Those are all rich symbols in Jewish culture. The, the best robe would have been a, a symbol of, of dignity, a, a symbol of a priest, a symbol even of a king, very godly attire. The ring was a signal or a sign of standing and authority within the family. And I love the sandals one. Because the sandals, the only ones who would not wear sandals in that father's family were the servants. No, the sandals are a sign of, of sonship. And, and so just notice what's happening here in this painting. This is what gripped Nouwen so profoundly. It is, this is obviously the scene where the son is being initially embraced by the father. We've noticed the hands, but, but the ratty attire, one shoe is completely off the foot. Uh, the other one's falling off right here. The son is a mess. And, and he wants to be just treated as a hired man. And, and the father says, no, 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 no. You're my son. And it's time to embrace you. 
It's time to welcome you home. And again, some of you are saying, yeah, I know, I've, I've been there before, but you know, could God really do it again? Jesus actually answered this question when, when Peter asked, I think it was Peter, you know, how many times are we to forgive for the same offense? Do you remember what Jesus said? Because like Peter said, should we do it up to like even seven times? And what did Jesus say? Seven times 70, which the math is 490 times. And here's the point. I don't think Jesus was even stopping there. He's just trying to make a point, Amen. He's just trying to say no matter how many times, here's what you, need, you guys need to understand about God. This is the amazing thing about him. When you peel back God and, and try to understand him like an onion, you get to layers. We've seen some of those layers today. There's a layer of truth. There's a layer of, of tough love, you know, like allowing you to be in pig slop till you wake up. I mean, there's all these different layers of God because God is so complex. But here's what the Bible makes really clear. When you get to the core of who God is, you ready for this? The Bible says God is love. Now, watch this. Love when it confronts sin. Love when it confronts fallen humanity that tends to be like sheep who wander all the time. When love is shown in that context, the Bible has a different word for it. You ready for this? It's the word grace. Because you see, grace is God's love when you deserve it the least. Grace is God showing you compassion when you don't deserve compassion. That's the cool thing about God, that when you get to the core of him, and this bothers legalistic Christians, by the way, because they don't want to have to think that God might be this good. But when you get to the core of who God is, he is a God of grace and compassion. And yes, there's judgment, and yes, there's tough love, and yes, there's anger. I mean, again, God is complex, but the core of him, and that's what now was on to here. That's what Jesus is saying in this story. The core of him is grace. The core of God is welcoming repentant prodigals home who want to come back into the family. And one last thought on this before we wrap this up with a time of, of, of prayer and commitment. I, and again, this is just so rich, is that the very last word here in verse 24 is that the father says it's time to celebrate. You know what's rich about that? And again, this is almost comical. What did the son do with all that money that the father gave him? Do you remember what he did? He partied. He, he celebrated in some hedonistic, sinful fashion. So isn't it ironic that now that the son is home and doesn't have any money, the father says, let's party. Let's celebrate. But this isn't going to be a rave party. This isn't going to involve all your sinful, decadent friends. This is going to involve the angels of heaven. This is going to involve the family of God. And we're going to celebrate that you're now home. And he's going to show them how to really have a party. Amen? So that's what God is like. And many of us, many of us need to change our theology and start to understand who God is and what he is really like. That the blood of Jesus is not just some wonderful song that we sing. No, the blood of Jesus was shed at great price so that God might deal with our sin and offer us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. Because God is so committed to you. He loves you so tenderly and he wants you to come home when you stray. So here's what we're going to do in our time remaining right now, and then we'll hand it off to our, our campus pastors for them to complete the, their service, their, the service here. But before we do that, I, I want to enter into a, a meaningful time of prayer with all of us. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's some of you here today that, that, that need to come home. There's some of you here today that get you're the younger son, you get maybe you've been running full blast, maybe you've just strayed, whatever you want to call it, but you know you're not in that sweet spot. 
and, and you're, you're ready to say, maybe you come to your senses, I want to come home. And so I want to pray with you to do that right now. So here's what we're going to do. I want every head in here bowed because this is between you and God. Every head right now bowed. So all of us just bow your head and just pray with me here in a few minutes. And at Northridge Cactus Chapel and Venue, even those of you watching online, just bow your head with me right now. And just so that God sees it, he sees it no matter what, but just so that God sees it and you are counted, if you are somebody who is ready to come home today, if this means anything to you, just just where you sit, raise your hand. No one's looking. It's just between you and God. Be counted. Just raise your hand. And and so now you can put it down. That's okay. And so now that, 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 that we've recognized who you are, let's pray together to the Lord. And Father, we pray this. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and for the amazing stories that he told us, stories that are all about the kingdom of God that affect our lives and bring us home to you. Lord, we thank you for this story of the prodigal son. We thank you for the image that Rembrandt drew as he got into this story. And God, we thank you that we can identify ourselves in this story. And Father, right now, there are some of us here that identify with that younger son. I know I do so many times as one who can wander and stray and distance ourselves from you. We have such a strong fallen propensity to do that, Father. But that's no excuse. We know that the life of faith, that a life of trust, a life of submission, a life of obedience is all about making that turn back to you on a regular basis. Lord, there's some of us here today that are doing that right now. We've come to our senses. We know we need you. And God, we know that you are there with wide open arms. We know you're there to receive us and enfold your hands upon us. And so Lord, right now in our heart of hearts, in our minds, with our lives, we turn to you. And we come back to you in full assurance of faith and in trust in you. We claim the blood of Christ, which atones for our sins. We claim the Holy Spirit who convicts us and woos us to you. We claim the Trinity, of the Godhead, and we claim a Father who receives us back right now. And Lord, I pray that anybody who's doing that here today, right now, I pray, God, that they would leave here and not listen to Satan's whispers. I pray, God, that they would hear your voice, and when they receive whispers of shame or guilt or or things that tell them they're no good, the Father can't be that way, God, they would reject that, and that they would realize that you are the Father full of compassion, full of grace and love, and you receive prodigals home. And Lord, may this week be a different week. And Lord, if we're all tempted to wander, even in a little bit, may we turn immediately to you and realize where our needs are met, and that is walking with you. Help us to do that, God. Keep us close. Draw us close, we pray. We come home, and we thank you you receive us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.